want to thank you for subscribing and listening in to our podcast today. Uh, please rate and review us. We would also love to connect with you. If you would like to, to speak to a pastor, you want more information about our church, text CONNECT to 903-586-6520 and we will follow up with you. If you would like to support the ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, you can text GIVE to 903-586-6520 and click on the link and you will have the option of giving one time or on a regular basis. We would greatly appreciate your support and thanks again for listening. Have a great week. Have you ever asked God for something and received it? Have you ever found yourself in a bad situation, prayed to God for him to deliver you from it, and then he did? How did you respond? Did you praise him for it? How did you thank him? Truth is, most of us, if... Not all of us, and I've been guilty of this myself, at some points have asked God to rescue us from a difficult situation. And then when he did, our response was half-hearted or maybe even non-existent. Today we're going to look at a biblical example of a proper response to God's grace and mercy. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 66. Authorship of this psalm is attributed to the choir master, but we're not told exactly who that is or when it was written. Some believe David is the author because it was written in the Davidic style. Also, it seems to tie together Psalms 65 through 68, psalms of which authorship is attributed to David. It's also interesting to note that in every other psalm from 51 up to this point, authorship is attributed to David. Others believe that it may have been written by someone else after David's reign, citing the mention of God's house in verse 13 and the military defeat in verses 8 through 12. Although, as Charles Spurgeon pointed out, the tabernacle also carries the designation God's house. Regardless of the exact time it was written or who we attribute authorship to, we can be confident that the psalmist represents Israel, and he probably served as their leader, possibly as their king, as indicated by the scale of offerings described in verses 13 through 15. Primarily, Psalm 66 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It contains elements of the three most common types of psalms, the element of praise, the element of lament, and the element of thanksgiving. Most of you are familiar with the psalm of praise, which is also called the hymn. Graham recently preached from some psalms of praise. They begin with a call to praise God. This is followed by a reason to praise God and then a further call to praise God. We call psalms with this element as their main theme, psalms of orientation, because in them all is well. And the psalmist is seen praising God. Another element we see in this psalm is the element of lament. 
We call psalms with this element as their main theme, psalms of disorientation, because things are not as the psalmist might hope. He is seen crying out to God for deliverance from a bad situation, even making promises to God if he would only hear the psalmist please for help and deliver him from his trouble. The third element is the element of thanksgiving, and this is the main theme of Psalm 66. In a psalm of thanksgiving, the psalmist restates a previous lament, credits God for deliverance from the trouble represented in the lament, and follows it with what is called the remainder. And the remainder includes thanksgiving and further praise. We call these psalms psalms of reorientation because in them we see a period where things were good, then there's a period where things become bad, And after some time, God restores things to being good again. Psalm 66 begins as a psalm of praise with verses 1 through 4, giving a call to praise God. Verses 5 through 7 give a reason for praising God. And then verse 8 gives a further call to praise God. Verses 9 through 12 provide the lament element of the psalm in verses 10 through 12a, we see a restated lament, and in verses 9 and 12b, we see the psalmist giving credit to God for his people's deliverance from the trouble represented in the lament. And then verses 13 through 20 provide the thanksgiving element of this psalm. Here the psalmist expresses thanksgiving to God by offering up sacrifice, blessing God with his words, and blessing God with his life. This morning, as we examine this beautifully written psalm and study God's word, I want you to notice the psalmist's response to God's grace in his life and in the lives of God's people. As we move through the text, I want you to consider three important points, beginning with point number one, which is true followers of Christ approach God with humility and give him the praise he deserves. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. Again, these verses begin the psalm of praise section of this psalm with a call to praise God. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Selah. Selah is a pause for a moment of reflection. So as we reflect, I want you to notice something here. You can almost hear the excitement in his voice as the psalmist calls you to shout for joy, to sing glorious praise to God. He tells us to lift our voices in praise to Him, not with the half-hearted sort of praise, but with the joyous and glorious praise. It should be a heartfelt, reverent act, the very best that we have to offer. Often we fail to give God our very best. That's because we tend to save our best for ourselves. We place our focus on things we want, instead of the things that God deserves. But it is God who is deserving of our attention and focus 
above all, including ourselves. Notice that the psalmist calls all the earth to give God praise, not just Israel. That's because God is not just the God of Israel. He is the God of all people. His offer of redemption extends to all people. He revealed his plan of redemption to all people in Genesis 3. Therefore, there before Adam and Eve, after their fall, he said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Of course, God was speaking of Jesus and the redemptive work he would later accomplish on the cross. And those in the Old Testament times who placed their faith in God looked forward to the redemptive work of Christ. Those since Christ's work on the cross who have put their faith and trust in Him look back to Christ's redemptive work on the cross. And now, all believers since the beginning look forward to Christ's return and the completion of God's redemptive plan which is as sure as the resurrection itself. Have you given your life over to King Jesus? If not, I pray you will do that today. In a few minutes, I will tell you how you can do that. To give a proper response to God's mercy and grace, you must first understand who He is. Verse 3 Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. The psalmist wants, to, wants us to understand and acknowledge the awesomeness of our, our almighty, all-powerful God. The Hebrew word used here for awesome can also be translated frightening or fearful or terrible. We read in Psalm 47 too, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. In Isaiah 45, 7 we read, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Sometimes we think that we are the ones who are in control, but we're not. We think, I've got this. But God is sovereign, and it's through His providence that our circumstances unfold. Even the most powerful of kings and rulers on earth are established by Him, and they are powerless against Him. Over and over throughout history, God put His power on display for man to see. In the beginning, He created everything, including man. Because men's hearts had become evil continuously, he destroyed all mankind in the great flood, except for Noah and his family. Who else can do that? And who can stand against it? He destroyed the Pharaoh and his army with the crushing Red Sea. He brought down the walls of Jericho with the shout of his people. I could go on and on. God has placed His awesome power on display for man to see many times throughout history. He alone is worthy of our praise, and He is deserving of our heartfelt and sincere praise continuously. Do you give God the praise He deserves? Do you recognize Him as sovereign, 
and focus your attention and praise toward Him. Do you say to God, how awesome are your deeds? I pray that you do. Next, the psalmist gives the reason why we should praise God, as if we needed more, right? Remember I said before that the psalm of praise section begins with a call to praise God, which is followed by a reason to praise God, which is then followed by a further call to praise God. The next three verses continue the psalm of praise section by giving the reason to praise God. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in Him who rules by His might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Second pause for reflection. As we reflect, notice that the psalmist tells us that the reason we should give God our, response, our praise is because He is awesome in His deeds toward His people. He turned the sea into dry land as a reference to God parting the Red Sea to deliver Israel from their bondage in Egypt. They passed through the river on foot as a reference to when God held back the Jordan River so His people could cross over into the promised land. God still delivers people from bondage today. He still makes a way for them to enter into the promised land. When judgment day comes, will you be entering into His promised land in heaven? Or are you one of the rebellious who exalt themselves above God? Do you place yourself on the throne in your life? Or do you give that place over to Him? Who sits on the throne in your life? In verse 6, the psalmist identifies himself with God's people in the past. There did we rejoice in Him. Although the psalmist clearly was not there when the Red Sea parted and when the waters of the Jordan were held back, he identifies with those who were there as if he was a part of them, and he was. And if you're a believer, then so are you. Believers are adopted into God's family. When we give our lives to Him, we become His children and His people. We identify as His people and with His people throughout history. And we are used for God's redemptive purposes just like Israel was throughout history. And I'll talk a little bit more about that a little later, about being used for His redemptive purposes. Verse 8 completes the psalm of praise section of this psalm by giving a further call to praise God. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard. Again, you can almost hear the excitement in His voice as the psalmist delivers the call to praise God. Believers, do you get excited about who God is? Do you praise Him with the same zeal and passion that this psalmist did? You should. We all should. Next, we have the thanksgiving section of this psalm. Remember that in the psalm of thanksgiving, the psalmist restates a lament, which is a cry out to God for deliverance from trouble. Then he credits God with deliverance from the trouble and gives 
thanks and further praise. Verses 10 through 12a provide the restated lament and tell us of the trials represented in the lament, whereas nine, verses 9 and 12b tell us of God's deliverance for His people. Look with me at the text. He who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. God sends His people through trials. He brought Israel into the net. And the net is inescapable. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. Just ask Jonah. He laid a crushing burden on their backs, but it had purpose. He let men ride over their heads, which speaks of God allowing them to be defeated in battle. Going through fire and water are general acknowledgments of suffering. I have a newsflash for you, believers. Just because you belong to God doesn't mean you won't suffer. God allows His people to go through trials. Charles Spurgeon had something to say about this. Look at this quote up on the screen. All the saints must go to the proving house. God had one son without sin, but He never had a son without trial. You might ask, well, Kevin, why would a loving God allow His people to endure such suffering? And to that I would say, well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> we find the answer to this question in verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. When silver is mined, it needs to be separated from its carrier metal, mostly lead. It doesn't have a lot of usefulness in this state as a precious metal. It needs to be purified. To do this, the craftsman places it under extremely high temperatures. And under these extreme conditions, the impurities, known as dross, they rise to the surface where they're skimmed off, leaving behind pure silver. This pure silver, now valuable and useful as a precious metal, has a unique property of reflecting brilliant light. This is what God does with His people. He places us under extreme conditions. Our impurities become exposed as they rise to the surface. God removes those impurities and purifies us through obedience to His Word. Listen to what the Apostle Peter said in his epistle to the Christians in Asia Minor who were at the time enduring suffering. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a pure, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let me read that first line again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You see, when God refines us, when He removes the impurities of our flesh, when He removes the ugly dross of our sin nature through sanctification by His Holy Spirit and through obedience to His Word, 
The only thing left is a brilliant mirror finish to reflect the very image of God himself. The point of application almost writes itself here. When people see you, what or who do they see? Do they see a brilliant reflection of God's image radiating from you? Or do they see a a sin nature manifested in disobedient acts? Do they see an obedient heart made visible through holy living? Or do they see persistent rebellion in your life along with its consequences? Yes, God allows us to go through trials, but it's a merciful act. It's a merciful act because it conforms us to His image. And as God conforms us to His image, He brings us to a place of abundance. Contrary to what the world believes and teaches, a place of abundance is not a pocket full of money. It's a heart overflowing with God. This is where we are supposed to be. This is where He brings us. And for this... God deserves our praise. From here, everything else lines up properly. Our relationships with our family, our relationships with our friends, our relationship with the world, and most importantly, our relationship with God. Believers, this is the reason that we were created. In Genesis, when God said that He created man in His image, this is what He meant. He created us to be His image bearers. But for us to do that, we must deny ourselves. And that brings me to my second point. You probably thought I'd never get there, right? (laughs) It goes faster from here, I promise. True followers of Christ deny themselves and offer themselves up to God as living sacrifices. As most of you know, I'm sure, after God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he led them to Mount Sinai where he established a sacrificial system to provide atonement for sin. Animals were sacrificed for this purpose, but they never truly satisfied the sin debt acquired by man. They served as a foreshadowing of the perfect sacrifice to come, the Lamb of God, the Christ, Jesus. So we've seen for the Thanksgiving section of this psalm where the psalmist restated the lament and credited God for delivering him and God's people from their trials. Verses 13 through 20 represent the remainder of the thanksgiving section of this psalm. Remember, in the remainder, the psalmist thanks God and gives him further praise. We see the psalmist showing his thanks first by offering up the appropriate sacrifice for his day. Read with me beginning in verse 13. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Third pause for reflection. As we reflect, note that not only did the psalmist offer up the appropriate sacrifices for his time, but he fulfilled the vows made to God when he was in trouble. Did you ever promise God that he would, if he would just deliver you for, from some trouble that you would do something in return? 
Did you follow through with it? Did you ever say to him, God, if you'll just get me out of this mess, I promise I'll, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll give all my money to the church. Or maybe you told him, Lord, I'll feed the poor. I'll help the weak. I'll, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Did you? Earlier I mentioned that Jesus became the perfect sacrifice. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. The Son of God came and made a way to atone for sins once and for all. Jesus, the Lamb of God, spotless and blameless, came and lived a perfect and holy life. He laid down His life willingly at the cross, died and was raised to life again on the third day so that those who put their faith and trust in Him, repent from their sins, turn from them and follow Him, would be saved. When God looks at them, He no longer sees their sins but Christ's righteousness and therefore their sin debt is paid. If you haven't done this, I pray that you will do that today. Don't wait. If you are a believer then you are called to present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Graham mentioned last week in the candlelight service that when you consider all that God went through to provide a way for us to be reconciled to Him, when you think about all that He did throughout history, when you think about the humiliation and the suffering that Jesus went through so you could have a way to get to a right relationship with God, you should be excited about it. You should want to go and shout it. You should want to sing it out like the psalmist said. And that brings me to my third and final point. True followers of Christ share their testimony and God's message of salvation with others. Look with me in verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done. For my soul. In verse 5, the psalmist called all people to come and see what God has done. Now he tells them to come and hear what God has done. Believers, you're not meant to be quiet about God's redemptive work in your lives. You're called to be that city on a hill. And part of letting your light shine is sharing your testimony and the gospel with others. Do you tell others what God has done in your life? Do you tell them who He is and do you tell them about His redemptive plan for man? Remember, you may be the only message that someone sees or hears about Christ. And saying nothing, well, that sends a message too. My prayer for you is for Boldness to share Christ with others. Let's take a look at the testimony of the psalmist. Verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If 
I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Here the psalmist gives us valuable insight into what makes our prayer lives either effective or ineffective. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the, war, the Lord would not have listened. Because sin separates us from God, confessing our sins and repenting from them are prerequisites to having our prayers heard. If your heart is not in the right place, then your prayer life will be fruitless. Look at this quote up on the screen from Gerald H. Wilson's comments in the NIV application commentary. He said this, It is not so much the sin that stands in the way. We have already seen that God is able to forgive what appear to be overwhelming transgressions. What blocks God from acting is an attitude of cherishing sin in my heart. This idiom means to look with enjoyment at evil in my heart and suggests an attitude that resists repentance for wrongdoing and instead gloats over evil deeds. God, says the psalmist, will not respond in grace to such arrogance. The fact that God does act graciously is positive proof that the psalmist has adopted the appropriate stance of repentance and reliance on God's mercy, which is at the core of the fear of God. As Wilson makes clear, cherishing sin in our hearts is to desire and choose evil. And evil is that which is other than God. It includes anything unrighteous or unholy, anything that disregards or rejects any of God's Word. We tend to think that we can get away with some sin in our life. We think, well, my sin's not that big. God will overlook that. But the truth is, God does not overlook it. And sin is destructive. You might think that you're getting away with it, but you're not getting away with it, and it never affects just you. It affects everyone around you, and it affects for generations. Don't think sin isn't serious. Our sin cost Jesus his life. Thankfully, God hears the prayers of the truly repentant. We know by reading John 9, 31, he says this, he says, We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And the psalmist is clearly repentant here. Verse 19, But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. The psalmist's heart's in the right place. It's a repentant heart. His desire is to bless God, and we can see this in verse 20. Blessed be God because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. So in verse 8, the psalmist calls God's people to bless God, and here he blesses God personally. In fact, we've seen that the psalmist blesses God not only with his words, but with his actions with his life. He approaches God with humility and gives him praise, the praise that he deserves. He denies himself and he offers up the appropriate sacrifice to God. He shares God's message of salvation and his personal testimony with others. 
If you're a believer, you have a testimony too. Of course, the psalmist's testimony happens to be the Word of God. But if you're a believer, then your testimony aligns with God's Word. And that makes it powerful. And it makes it insightful. So go and share it. My prayer is that when you leave here today, you will go forward with a renewed reverence for God and a desire to give Him the praise He deserves. I pray you will offer up yourselves to God as living sacrifices as commanded in Scripture. And I pray you will go and share the gospel in your personal testimony with others. Remember, if you're a believer, someone shared it with you. If you're here today or you're listening online and you're not a believer, if you haven't committed your life to Christ, my prayer for you is that you would do that today. Don't wait. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not even promised the rest of today. There's no guarantee that you'll have another chance. Give your life up and over to Him today and be saved. Let's pray together.